0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about the real-time construction of the world's newest lost cause narrative, the failed re-election of Donald Trump. This is not our country's first experience with lost causes, however, and it's not, contrary to popular opinion, even our second connection to a lost cause narrative because we didn't invent the first one, we borrowed it from somewhere else— and i will tell you that story today i do have clips for you today as i normally do but first i must set the stage a little bit i'm going to start At the end, my conclusion today is that we are witnessing the birth of a new lost cause narrative, that Donald Trump's refusal to accept the election results is not just due to his oversized ego's inability to accept defeat, nor is it purely a money grab, though it is obviously that as well. In addition to those factors, we are also witnessing the creation of a lost cause myth, and I think the motivation behind this is that lost cause myths have proven to be some of the most durable and powerful legacies that can be left behind to live on after a movement has faltered or failed. It's the ideological seed that gets planted for a future generation to harvest.
1: So this morning, while many of us were still lost in our dreams, Donald Trump tweeted, And I know that is a sentence none of us ever really need to hear again, but this time it seemed to imply that he had gotten his head around the fact that Joe Biden won the election. This, of course, set all kinds of people ablaze, wondering if he was finally prepared to concede. But within a couple hours, he was back on message, lying about voter fraud and insisting that he won, in spite the enormous and transparent evidence that he lost by a lot. We are several days into this performance with remarkable moments like the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo's press conference last week.
2: Uh, Is the State Department currently preparing to engage with the Biden transition team? And if not, at what point does a delay hamper a smooth transition or pose a risk to national security?
3: There will be a smooth transition to a second Trump administration. All right, we're, we're ready.
1: Or White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany's appearance on Fox Business this
4: weekend. Are, are you prepared to say that the president will, de- President Trump, will definitely
5: attend the inauguration?
6: Uh, again, you know, that's many, that's many steps away here. Uh, we're talking January and uh, President Trump believes he will be President Trump, have a second term. Uh, and litigation is the first step, many steps away from that.
7: It
4: would look pretty bad if he... Did not attend the inauguration, it would sound like well, look like sour grapes, wouldn't it?
6: I, I think the President will attend his own inauguration. He would have to be there, in fact
1: many people are understandably mocking this stuff as some kind of alien planet of reality, and the general consensus seems to be that this can't succeed. He will have to leave the White House and then it'll all go away. but it 's that last bit that I question about the staying power of this denial. And what it can do when it sticks. I'm thinking of Barack Obama's birth certificate of death panels. Remember that? The last time there was a public option up for debate? Or for that matter of welfare moms or Pizzagate. We could go on and on with fantastic absurdist assertions that nonetheless stuck with people and mattered. A Politico morning consult poll taken a few days after the election found that 70% of Republicans don't believe the election was fair. Seven out of ten. This can mean all kinds of stuff about the short-term faith in our democracy, and that's a big deal by itself. But I also wonder about the long-term narrative of history, because we have in our history a powerful and terrifying example of how this kind of denialism can consume not only our politics, but the soul of the country. So this week, we are again going to travel back to those crucial and instructive years following the Civil War, when the Confederacy— managed to claim victory despite defeat, and it worked.
0: Now, before we dive in deep to the lost cause of the Confederacy, I want to lay out some history in broad strokes to explain how a lost cause narrative gets built. So here's the basic structure with a story you'll be familiar with. There's two groups of people, North and South, are ruled by the same government, but bitter divisions exist, resulting in a war being launched to defend the liberties and the very way of life of the aggrieved. A leader rallies his side into fierce rebellion. The fighting is bloody and brutal, but the rebellion is ultimately crushed." In the wake of the fighting, years of harsh crackdown follows. The victors look to extinguish many of the customs of the losing side in an effort to drown any final embers of rebellion. The defeated are demoralized and utterly disempowered. They still live in their homeland, but it is now a military occupation, and they are forced to adhere to the customs of their oppressors. Years pass and bitterness grows. There was a longing for an antebellum age before the war when they may not have been entirely independent, but at least they could follow their customs and live the life they felt was their birthright. Then there's a turning point. That longing for a bygone age was able to be converted into a powerful, "...irrepressible pride for their heritage. They couldn't reverse the result of the war, but they were able to take back control of the narrative. They combined romanticized stories of the old ways with heroic and noble accounts of the failed fight to maintain their way of life as a fulcrum and lever to lift their previously sunken spirits to new heights." This narrative carried on through the generations with constant retellings and celebrations. Money was raised and monuments were built to commemorate the heroes of the Lost War and those who would go on to tell the romanticized version of their story. The legacy carries on to this very day and echoes can be felt in the makeup of the government and the sentiments of the people who are the descendants of that bloody war between North and South." Now, if any of that sounds familiar, it should, because I have just described, in rather loose terms, the very famous Jacobite Rebellion of 1745, consisting primarily of Scottish Highlanders waging war against the British, under the leadership of Bonnie Prince Charlie. You might think that I've I've pulled this little you know historical switcheroo on you for fun. Not so, because I am going somewhere with this. And it is important to understand this history in order to truly. Understand America, believe it or not. So let's go over that one more time with a few more details filled in. Many in Scotland in the 1700s felt that Prince Charlie was the rightful heir to the throne in both England and Scotland, and so that, combined with enough economic and political pressure, was enough to spark an uprising. One of the most famous places in Scotland related to the Jacobite Rebellion was 1745 is a place called Glenfinnan, and there's a good chance you've actually seen this place without knowing about it. If you saw the movie adaptation of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, you may recall the scene in which Harry and Ron take a flying car to Hogwarts. They nearly get crushed by the Hogwarts Express on the way. That scene with the train was filmed at the Glenfinnan Viaduct, which is within eyesight of an enormous monument erected on the spot where Bonnie Prince Charlie landed and raised his flag, calling on the leaders of the Highland clans to join him in a campaign against the British. Oh, and the Hogwarts Express, shown in the movie? In real life, that train is called the Jacobite. The uprising, which launched in 1745, lasted about eight months before being crushed in a final battle in 1746, less than one year later, after the fighting ended, the British wanted to ensure that the rebellion wouldn't start up again, so they stationed military units all over Scotland and implemented new laws banning aspects of traditional Scottish culture, including tartan kilts and the Scots language. Things continued on in this way for decades. The spark that helped rekindle pride in Scottish heritage and the reason why we know what tartan kilts are today came in the form of the writings of Sir Walter Scott. You may have heard of his name, even if you don't know what he wrote or why he's famous. Scott began writing historical fiction novels in the 1810s. So this is about 60 years after that failed Jacobite uprising. And for context, This moment in Scottish history, as Scott begins writing, is coinciding with the explosion of the cotton industry in the American South. So Scott wrote romanticized stories of old Scotland like Rob Roy, Ivanhoe, and his series of Waverly novels. In his stories, he would often include passages actually written in the old Scots language, and young readers who only spoke English would have to ask their older relatives what these words meant, and it created this sort of intergenerational conversation about Scots and the old ways. And so for this reason, Walter Scott is often credited with not only rekindling the a pride in Scottish heritage, but also helping to save the Scots language from extinction. And Scott would go on to become the first writer in history to become world famous during his own lifetime. Other authors had become world famous, but only after they'd passed away. And if you want to know how the people of Scotland felt about him, besides him being famous, you just have to look up a picture of downtown Edinburgh, where the Scots monument dominates the skyline of Newtown. It's been nicknamed the Gothic Rocket and was built primarily with money crowdfunded from average people to honor the person who they felt was most responsible for giving the Scots back their pride in their country and heritage. Sounds familiar? And just next to the Scots monument is Edinburgh's train station, Waverley Station named after Walter Scott's Waverly novels. As you well know, tartan kilts are going strong in Scotland and are even worn by the British royal family for special occasions. How's that for a switcheroo? As for the Scots language, if you'll allow me just one more Harry Potter reference, evidence of the health of that language can be seen in the fact that the Harry Potter books are being translated into Scots.
8: Mr. and Mrs. Dursley, a number four private loan, we're proud to say they were gay normal. Thank you very much. Nae doot, dummy dikes is nae the only one ye ken wa was fur oo. The four houses are called Gryffindor, Hufflepuff, Peck, and Slytherin. said Professor McGonagall. They were looking straight into the een of a monstrous dug. A dog that filled the hail space between ceiling and flair. It had three heats.
0: And in addition to the language and kilts and all the rest, as I said, you can trace the legacy of the rebellion and subsequent rebirth of Scottish nationalism right up until today. Just on the most major issue we'll all have heard of in the Brexit referendum, where voting took place in England, Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Wales, it was in England where the support for Brexit was strongest with 53%, sort of slim margin, voting to leave. While in Scotland, they had the most lopsided vote in the UK with a landslide 62% in favor of remaining in the EU. And now, after the 2019 elections in the UK, the SNP, the Scottish National Party, is dominant in Scotland, having run on a platform of calling for an independence referendum in the hopes of breaking away from England and the rest of the UK once and for all, this time at the ballot box rather than on the battlefield. And then, if they can manage that, they hope to rejoin the EU. But we're not here to talk about the present, we're talking about the past. So, we've seen as an example Example, what kind of impact the writings of Walter Scott and his romanticized version of Scottish history had for Scotland. Now we're going to look at the impact he had on the southern United States, a place filled with Scottish immigrants who had been forced from their Highland homes in Scotland during the Scottish clearances during the late 1700s and early 1800s, which is a whole other story and found new Highland homes for themselves in the American South, where they became farmers and were known as hillbillies.
2: To the frontier farmers, the economics were simple. Cotton was a cash crop that brought relatively easy money. It also offered an easy life as long as those picking the cotton were slaves. As the cotton industry grew, so did slavery. By 1810, the number of slaves in the US rose to 1.2 million, almost double what it was 20 years earlier. Now, the descendants of many oppressed and downtrodden refugee Scots took the path of racism to become oppressors themselves. And their simple farmhouses became increasingly grand plantation houses. Like this one, built in 1851 just outside Charleston by William Wallace MacLeod. He owned one of the largest plantations in South Carolina, but like many, he never forgot his roots. He called the grand house Inverness. The impression planters wanted to give was one of affluence and the most striking display of wealth at that time was measured by the number of slave cabins that lined the drive to the house. Here, there were 23. William Wallace MacLeod enslaved up to 100 people on his plantation, while he lived the life of undoubted privilege. Here in a place where slavery actually happened, I have to admit I am filled for the first time with feelings of disbelief at the surreal nature of the life that those elite whites chose for themselves. How you get to the point where you can enjoy a life that is composed of people who are your captives, who are around you in great numbers. Every minute of the day, doing things against their will for no pay. They cook your food, they work in the fields, they fix up the house. If it's a cold night, you would order one of them to lie across your feet on your bed so that you are warm. At what point does living like that feel in any sense normal and it was another Scott who provided the balm that made all this seem legitimate by the mid-1800s almost every house like this would have contained some of the many romantic novels of Sir Walter Scott. Scott's stories of gallant knights and brave Highlanders set in a golden mythical past were wildly popular But according to the American writer Mark Twain, they merely fed this fantasy lifestyle. Twain thought the planters were modeling their lives on Scott's romantic vision of the old country, imagining themselves as lairds of their own clan. He wrote that the civilization of the South in the 19th century is curiously confused and commingled with the Walter Scott middle-aged sham civilization. The inflated speech And the jejun romanticism of an absurd past that is dead and out of charity ought to be buried.
9: I think that for many people it felt as though it was something they were entitled to. And I think that sense of entitlement then passed from generation to generation. You know, the sense that you are supposed to have more than other people and that some people are supposed to serve and you are to be served.
2: Twain also thought that Scott's heroic romanticism was partly responsible for the terrible war that followed. Now, 150 years later, people flock to see the Civil War as entertainment and living history groups meet regularly to replay the battles again and again. This one is it Fort Hollingsworth in Georgia, where reenactors from all over the southern states take part? What is it important to remember by taking part in and watching a reenactment like this?
8: It's important to make sure that the people understand that what the history is all about. Um, it's important that they remember that this is something that their ancestors fought for and something that's actually a part of them. This is something that they were born and with and they should remember that.
2: What does define the ancestors?
8: They didn't leave any of their culture behind. They just brought it here and used that culture and created something completely new. You know, even from the way we talk, even down to the patterns in their clothes. I mean, you know, when the Scots came here, they brought with them, you know, the tartans. Our
1: way of life
0: is probably closer to those in, in Scotland
8: that, that are now in this part of the country.
5: We held on a lot to the, a lot of their ways. I think we did. Yeah, I think we did. What was lost when the war was lost? The way we lived, actually. The, they had plantations. A lot of folks had plantations and a, a lot of wealth. And a lot of that was lost in the South. They had to go back and, and start life over.
2: America's civil war was immensely destructive. Well over half a million soldiers died and much of the South's infrastructure was ruined. But for many whites, the greatest fear of all had just come true. The enslaved were now free. Not only that, but black men could also vote just as the vengeful North took away the right to vote for those that supported the Confederacy. Like the Jacobites in Scotland a hundred years earlier, the Southern Whites had lost everything. But now they too had a lost cause to believe in.
0: Everyone knows the basic idea that in order to be a well-rounded news consumer, we should be reading and listening to a variety of media sources. The problem is about how to actually make that happen, and that's why there's Ground News, the first news comparison app that gives you instant access to the entire spectrum of news sources for every news story. Don't read one headline when you can read a dozen headlines all describing the same story and then choose which version deserve to be read in full. I've completely ditched my old news app, and I can genuinely feel the difference in the depth and breadth of my news consumption habits. Ground News is free to everyone, but their revenue model is a subscription service where they just have a few premium features behind the paywall. But most importantly, they don't have any ads. They're completely different from other news curation apps because they are not trying to harvest as much of your attention as they can get to sell to advertisers. They're just trying to make you as informed as possible to prove the worthiness of their product. When you're ready to sign up, head to ground.news slash best for a discount. As an exclusive limited time offer, you can sign up today and get seven days free of their premium service. Listeners of Best of Left also get an extra 25% off their membership, making it less than $2 a month billed yearly. So what are you waiting for? That's ground.news/best, ground.news/best. Listen
10: to how this textbook describes slavery. The master often had a barbecue or a picnic
1: for his slaves. Then they had a great frolic. Even while working in the cotton fields, they sang songs. The beat of the music and the richness of their voices made work seem light.
10: Yikes, that's from History of Georgia, a textbook published in 1954 that was taught across junior high schools in Georgia for decades. That sort of language is part of an intellectual movement called the Lost Cause, a distorted version of American Civil War history that's been prevalent in the South for a long time. It took shape soon after the defeat of the Confederate States in the war, when Southern historians like Edward Pollard and former Confederate General Jubal Early started preserving the South's perspective through their writings. They framed the Confederate cause as a heroic defense of the Southern way of life against the overwhelming forces in the North. That narrative has a few basic tenets, the glorification of Confederate soldiers who died for a cause they believed in, the belief that slavery was a benevolent institution, and maybe most importantly, that slavery was not the root cause of the war. The Lost Cause is one of the most notoriously effective efforts to rewrite history, and it was done by the losing side. So how did it become so deeply rooted in Southern memory? Blame the United Daughters of the Confederacy. The UDC was founded in Nashville in 1894 to preserve Confederate culture for generations to come. The women who made up the group descended from elite antebellum families, and they used their social and political clout to spread the pro-Southern version of the war as real history. You've probably seen their efforts to honor the Confederacy, but maybe you didn't know it was the UDC. They're the ones who covered the southern landscape with memorials for Confederate leaders and soldiers. They used their fundraising and lobbying skills to pressure local governments into erecting monuments in prominent public spaces like courthouses and state capitals.
0: Installed here next to the state capitol by the United Daughters of the Confederacy.
10: The United Daughters of the Confederacy donated this memorial to the city back in the 30s. They put them along roadsides and in parks. Any place that was remotely relevant to the Confederacy was memorialized. By the early 20th century, the UDC had 100,000 members and chapters spread all over the country, but mostly in former Confederate states. And there's a reason they grew so quickly during that time.
11: So we're talking about roughly three decades after the end of the war, and the Confederate veterans themselves are beginning to die off. So there is this push to find ways to commemorate it, because the big challenge by 1900 was there's a new generation of white Southerners being born, and they never experienced the the
10: war years. That push is visible. Most of the Confederate monuments were erected during the UDC's height of influence.
8: There's a rhetoric around monuments that we want to get this thing built before all of that generation has died off. and the reason we want it is to teach future generations about those men.
10: Dr. Karen Cox wrote the book on the UDC, and I asked her if it was fair to say the group established the Lost Cause as historical fact in the South.
8: Oh my god, yeah! They were the leaders of the Lost Cause into the 20th century, and they made it a movement about vindication.
10: Just to give you an idea of how effective they were, they successfully lobbied for a Confederate memorial in Arlington National Cemetery, which U.S. President Woodrow Wilson proudly unveiled to a cheering crowd. Now that's influence, right?
8: Monuments are the least of what they did. Uh, what? I mean, they they are the most visible and tangible, but the work with children was far more influential.
10: It turns out a central UDC objective is shaping how children think about the war and their Southern heritage. One of their most powerful tools? Textbooks. Take a look at this pamphlet called A Measuring Rod for Textbooks. It was written by the illustrious Southern historian, Miss Mildred Rutherford, an educator, orator, and author of Southern history textbooks. She's also very pro-slavery. The pamphlet announced the formation of a textbook review committee featuring prominent Southerners, like five former Confederate generals. This group was committed to spreading the truths of Confederate history. So they instructed school boards to reject any textbooks that did not accord full justice to the South. And they urged libraries to deface every book in collection that didn't measure up by writing the words unjust to the south clearly on its cover this pamphlet was shared widely with school boards throughout the south and udc-backed committees closely monitored history books to make sure northern influence never reached classrooms so the core language of an approved textbook aligned precisely with that of the lost cause you know stuff like the confederacy lost in the war between the states but Georgia never forgot to honor her Confederate soldiers. History of Georgia was on the UDC's approved list. It was also written by E. Merton Coulter, a self-described Southern historian and historian-described white supremacist.
11: They understand that how you educate, who wins the writing game, who wins the, the battle over history, ultimately wins the war. That's the big fight for the UDC.
10: But their work with children went further than the classrooms. The UDC formed an auxiliary group called the Children of the Confederacy, which was designed to get kids born in former Confederate states to actively participate in their version of history. Group leaders had kids recite call-and-response truths from something called the Confederate Catechism. Children up to the age of 18 would compete and be rewarded for memorizing long passages of lost cause rhetoric.
8: So it would be like an after-school thing, you know, like that was your club. You would go after school to the meeting of the children of the Confederacy, and your leader might teach you songs of the South, like Dixie or other songs that were considered southern patriotic songs. They would have them write essays, go visit the veterans and learn this catechism.
10: Children were also the centerpiece of their community's monument unveilings, like this living flag at the dedication of the Stonewall Jackson Monument in Richmond. Yes, those are school children. The UDC's efforts shaped the identities of children who grew up with the lost cause. They made history personal and that made their story last longer.
8: Generations of generations of children learning that narrative in a variety of ways grow up to be, you know, segregationist in the 50s and 60s, because that's been drilled into them since they were children.
10: After World War One, the UDC started losing steam, but the damage was done. The monuments were in place and the textbooks they wrote remained in Southern classrooms until the late 70s. And the women's group did it all without the right to vote or participate in politics.
11: You can still get glimmers of this lost cause memory of the war from people who will always choose to see it through the personal. And I think the UDC to a great extent was, that was their goal.
10: So the next time someone says the Confederate monuments are about remembering our history, just know that that's exactly what the United Daughters of the Confederacy wants you to think.
9: Away,
5: away, away down south in Dixie. The day after Richmond fell, Abraham Lincoln came to Richmond. He came to this house. General Weitzel says, Mr. President, how should we treat these people? And Lincoln says, let them up easy.
6: Richmond, Virginia was the capital of the Confederacy, and that's kind of hard to miss, considering all of the monuments to Confederate war heroes throughout the city. It is very rare for the losing side of a war to have monuments.
5: Guess what else is real rare in world history? The whole way we ended the Civil War.
6: But those statues take on a really charged feeling for people. We have a clash
9: ...around memory and heritage and what it means with regard to the American
5: Civil War. Civil wars usually end with the losers going to the hangman's noose, the guillotine, to prison, to exile or something. And in this case, they just went home.
6: In America today, almost half the country believes that the Civil War was about states' rights but the historical record shows that the Civil War was about slavery. I talked to Waite Rawls, the former president of the Museum of the Confederacy, to get some answers.
5: Was slavery the principal cause of that political dispute? Yeah, yeah. There's no way to to deny that. But to say Confederacy is synonymous with racist is to connote, and nobody else was, and they were all by themselves in that. Ninety-nine percent of the white people living in the United States in 1860 were racists, including Abraham Lincoln.
6: Initially, Lincoln was not in favor of giving blacks voting rights, or allowing them to hold office, or even intermarry with whites. Eventually, he did make incredible steps forward in terms of equal rights, like the 13th Amendment and the Freedmen's Bureau Bill. But his main priority at the time was keeping the union together. So, he also pardoned all the Confederates and vetoed legislation banning slavery altogether. Back then, white supremacy was the nation's prevailing social order throughout all of the Union.
5: Another side of reconciling is we've got to push those African Americans out of the way. They're in the way to the national reconciliation of the white North and the white South. That gives ground for the lost cause politically, which was... We couldn't have been wrong. We simply must have been outnumbered.
6: The Lost Cause was a national propaganda campaign to misrepresent what the Civil War was actually about. The main tenets of the Lost Cause are that the Confederacy was fighting for states' rights, not slavery. That slaves had great working conditions, were loyal to their masters, and often fought for the Confederacy portraying slave owners as kind and Southerners in general as more steeped in Christian values in order to make the case that they were fighting for a just cause and only lost because they were outnumbered. —
9: It is a reflection of a need for Southerners to reconcile their grief over significant losses. The total disruption, initially, of their social order of white supremacy whether you were slaveholding or not.
6: But how did we get to a point where a propaganda campaign became American history?
5: General Moore at 99 follows the heroic dead of the South to a soldier's grave in Selma, Alabama, as the last tiny handful of the boys in gray prepares for the final Confederate reunion in Norfolk, Virginia.
9: The women who are most responsible for this did an extraordinary job.
6: A lot of the lost cause narratives can be traced back to funerals for Confederate soldiers and the women they left behind after the war. Women all over the South started creating memorial associations to collect the bodies of Confederate soldiers, properly bury them, and create monuments to their fallen heroes. One of the most prominent groups was the Confederate Memorial Literary Society.
9: They send out a call to prominent white women throughout the South and say, we have to preserve the legacy of our loved ones. And they open up what they call the Confederate Museum and it is a hit. It was a shrine. It was a shrine to the Confederacy. Each room of the house was set up with these artifacts from each of the Confederate states. But it's only their story. black folk are representatives because they are the loyal,
5: loving slaves, supposedly. One of the underrepresented stories of the American Civil War is the U.S. Colored Troops. At the end of the war, there were more black men in blue uniforms than white men in uh, gray uniforms. People need to know that.
9: We have completely removed black people from the narrative when they were central to it.
6: The Lost Cause made its way into popular culture through films like Birth of a Nation and Gone with the Wind.
9: The needs it, so going dig for the South. Don't worry, we we'll stop them
7: Goodbye, Big Sam. Goodbye, boys.
6: And eventually found its way into school textbooks and even legislation.
4: This group has nothing to do with discrimination that Congress prohibits, nor do they advocate radical...
9: 1910, they make the decision that, hey, No more textbooks that speak ill of the Confederacy. And that persists until today in some places.
6: In 2018, Christie and Waite decided to merge their museums to provide a more accurate picture of the Civil War from multiple perspectives.
5: What you want is for people to form their own perspective fully informed.
6: What's the harm in people not knowing the lost cause? The
9: harm comes when there is a disrespect for dignity of life that becomes sort of generational because it's grounded in a series of lies. The history has never been about the dead people, really. It's always about us and the moment that we're in and the issues we're trying to contemplate and wanting to understand sort of this connective tissue.
6: It's always been that. Do you feel like Richmond is going through its own sort of truth and reconciliation process through these challenging discourses, disagreements, and representations of the city?
9: I think Richmond is going through a period of awakening. The only way that you really can come to some form of conciliatory behavior is when everybody finally understands it, and and has um, a desire to move forward in a more equitable way. This is what we do in museums. The challenge is helping people build new memories so they can create a more accurate heritage.
5: The American experiment was a huge advance into something very, very new, and they called it an experiment all the time. We need to continue calling it an experiment, which means that it can get better if we keep working at it.
3: We wanted to know why history was still being erased and distorted here. These are the questions we had for Beauvoir's then-Executive Director, Thomas Paine.
7: I do think we need to talk more about slavery, and the reason I got that was not from, from, other, from the kids. We have a lot of our young kids who come here, and, and they want to know where the whipping post was at. And, and the way we handle that, since they're young kids, we don't have a whipping post.
3: So what I hear him saying is that we can't talk about slavery at all because kids can't handle it. But what about those Civil War battles? We watched a lot of people fall down playing dead in a field. That kind of violence that glorifies the Confederacy is A-OK here. But the violence of slavery, Beauvoir steers clear of that.
7: We're judging a lot of what happened in the 19th century with our 20 and 21st century uh, glasses, so to speak. We're looking through lenses of the 20 and 21st century and saying, oh, that's terrible.
3: We've heard this before. You can't judge slavery by today's standards. But we don't need to. Abolitionists, including the formerly enslaved, Argued against the system while it was happening for the same reason we argue against it today.
7: It was wrong. And yet, Payne defends Davis. I think that would be an honest perception that he was a benevolent slaveholder.
3: There's no way to benevolently own another person's body, another person's life, another person's future. That phrase, benevolent slaveholder, is straight up lost cause language.
1: So here's a term we need to understand lost cause. Confederates who lost the war devised this idea of the lost cause. It's a whole false interpretation of history, designed to justify their defeat, to absolve themselves of any guilt for starting the war, and to vindicate their pre-war way of life. And this story is still being told at Beauvoir.
3: The larger goal of these once powerful men was to end the process that was reordering Southern society. Reconstruction. They wanted to redeem their status, their power, and their control over black lives and labor.
9: These fantasies persist because people have to believe. They have to believe that they fought for something greater than the continued subjugation of another human being.
3: Christy Coleman is a longtime administrator of historic sites, and she's currently the CEO of the American Civil War Museum in Richmond, Virginia. She's an African-American woman, and the center she runs tells a story of the Civil War that's complicated, at times ugly, and it includes the perspectives of African-Americans free and enslaved and of Union and Confederate soldiers. In other words, The full story.
9: It's almost laughable when I read some of these um, diary entries about these owners, these slaveholders who are just so mortified that, well, Jenny's been with me since she was six years old. And the fact that she ran off with those Yankees and I'm just sure that they, you know, uh, uh, overwhelmed her little fragile mind. But this is the same woman that you've had whipped several times because she has run away on her own long before the war. There was just this cognitive dissonance related to it that is really stunning. You have a narrative that makes people comfortable for the spaces that they're in.
11: Who owns history? How do you answer? One of the things that was clarified for me in writing the book, and certainly having spent time researching this topic over the years, no one does. And I think that is something that has been reinforced by just the emergence of the internet, especially social media. There are no gatekeepers. As much as academic historians still want to claim some, I don't want to say ownership, but at least wanting to set the standard for what counts as historical inquiry, I think those days are long over in large part because, as you know, Oh, anyone can post anything on the internet, can create social media pages, and you have people who flock to them who have their own prior assumptions reinforced. Much of that, of course, is wrapped up in current politics. The Black Confederate narrative, it reinforces still that white Americans are still, for any number of reasons, they gravitate toward mythology about slavery, whether it's to whitewash the past, to just remove the issue of race and slavery from It is a Wild West show from my perspective. You know, I've been engaged in blogging and I've been on social media since 2005, and I've seen it gradually deteriorate further. As widespread as this narrative is on the internet, it never quite took hold as the mainstream view of the Confederacy. The original intent behind this narrative in the late 1970s, at least as far as the Sons of Confederate Veterans was concerned, was to replace this growing what David Blight would call this emancipationist narrative that emphasized emancipation, the service of Black Union soldiers, and slavery generally. goal was to replace that, to push it back, if you will, coming out of the civil rights movement. And although it took hold in a number of places, it never quite maintained any mainstream hold. You know, anyone can go on the internet and find, once you buy into it, it exposes you to the broader myth, which is that Slavery is irrelevant to American history, and more specifically, to understanding the Civil War and the Confederacy. Why do folks want to believe in this Black Confederate myth, or more generally, what's going on in terms of the political work and the emotional work, in terms of these mythologies about the Confederacy? Going to 1861 to look at what Confederates themselves had to say in terms of what they thought they were fighting for uh, is one way to go about it. And as you mentioned, Stevens' Cornerstone speech is central. It just clarifies things in ways that few other speeches did at that time. But I think actually it's even more clarifying to look at what Confederates are saying about slavery when they had the opportunity in 1864-65 to enlist slaves as soldiers. So up until that point of tens of thousands impressed slaves... Serving throughout the Confederates as body servants or what I call camp slaves, they're also very clear at this point. There's no shortage of Confederates in the army, in the Confederate government in Richmond, or generally on the home front who are scared out of their minds over the implications of even talking about whether or not slaves will make good soldiers. They understood that it would undercut everything they were fighting for, and even people who were for it weren't for it because they thought it would lead to a general emancipation. They thought that they could engage in some kind of limited policy, if you will, uh, that they could actually salvage slavery as a result of enlistment. So they were very clear during the war that this was going to be a white man's war. I mean, what I find so interesting about the, the Black Confederate narrative is it's really just an extension of the loyal slave narrative. It actually, in my mind, it's very consistent over time because in the years after the war, As the Lost Cause narrative takes hold among the defeated Confederates, the memory of the loyal slave is central because they want to push back against Reconstruction, they want to push back against military occupation of the South, and they also want to justify for themselves that their cause remained righteous, that God remained on their side, and in the end it was only the military might of the North that led to defeat. But it's really at the turn of the 20th century where you really begin to see the politics in a clear light. The former camp slave, you know, when he attended Confederate veterans reunions, when he was written about, served as, in the eyes of white Southerners, the model Black citizen. Elderly Black men who were loyal to the Confederacy, loyal to their former masters, and remain loyal to that memory and the racial status quo of what's now the Jim Crow South. Coincidence of dates. So we have the New York Times 1619 Project. Then we have the Bloody Red Summer 1919. Why are we still having these arguments in terms of America's public imagination about self-evident facts? there is that very strong strain of American exceptionalism that, whether you acknowledge it or not, just shapes our collective memory. And certainly the fact that history, for white Americans especially, functions as a glue. That's the intention, you know, when it's first taught to us growing up, fourth grade, fifth grade, whatever, that there's a nationalism that's baked into it, right? That this is what unites us. And so the founding myths... Think of the number of generations that come up with any number of these myths about our founding and and the virtues of the founding fathers and all of that. Slavery may have been alluded to, but it's something that would have been dealt with if you subscribe to American nationalism or some version thereof. Eventually, Americans are going to handle their problems. They're going to deal with these issues. And it's inevitable, of course, that specifically the issue of slavery will be somehow successfully dealt with. And, you know, Once you get into the history of the Civil War, come to realize that there was nothing inevitable about anything. Without a war, slavery could have continued for decades to come, perhaps into the early 20th century. It was certainly not dying any kind of slow death, as some Confederate apologists would have us believe. And even during the war, I mean, this is one of the more difficult things I find when it comes to teaching my students that even through the middle of the Civil War, the war could have ended with the Union intact and slavery still intact, you know, if it had ended before the end of 1862, before the Emancipation Proclamation goes into effect on January 1st. So there is this sort of mythology that, that again, I think is baked in, that's always been baked in, at least going back through the 20th century, and perhaps even earlier. The United States is always improving, freedom is always expanding. And I think the 1619 Project is a wonderful example where claiming that slavery is as foundational as perhaps self-government, which also, of course, begins in Virginia in 1619, for many people is just too much to take. And the reaction to the 1619 project, as you mentioned, from conservative circles, I think revealed that in the clearest possible terms. But if we're going to do the 101 version, where does this myth of the Black Confederate soldier come from? And who is advancing it? first sightings are the late 1970s, specifically coming out of the success of the television miniseries Roots. If I remember correctly, it aired in 1977. And you begin to hear representatives, members of the Sons of Confederate Veterans, sort of chatting amongst themselves. And they're very concerned about the success of this miniseries and the book, because it's really one of the first times that a large viewing public, white viewing public, is exposed to a darker history of slavery in the Civil War, certainly much different from what many people would have remembered in Gone with the Wind in 1939, which, of course, was still widely popular, and that might be the most popular movie about the Civil War and slavery of the entire 20th century. Some of the Confederate veterans are worried about having to apologize for defending their Confederate ancestors. So for the longest period of time, there was no concern about having to defend their Confederate ancestors because no one was really focused, at least white Americans, were focused on the issue of slavery and race during the war. The dominant narrative of the Civil War throughout much of the 20th century was a reunion narrative. In other words, white Americans on both sides could celebrate their, the veterans, the soldiers themselves, honor their bravery, honor the cause for which they fought, but we're not going to talk much about what those causes were and how they contrasted from one another. Coming out of the civil rights movement, that's becoming more and more difficult as historic sites begin to focus more on slavery, as museums begin to focus more on this issue, as textbooks begin to adopt some of the scholarship that's coming out in the post World War II period. And so the SCV, along with other veteran heritage types, they use the Black Confederate narrative to defend their ancestors. You had your black U.S. soldiers. We had ours as well. And they'll go on to argue that ours actually fought in integrated regiments as opposed to United States colored troops who, of course, fought in segregated units. You know, early on, this narrative really didn't take hold beyond the community itself, the SCV and Confederate heritage community, but it wasn't until the advent of the internet that things really picked up speed for the obvious reasons that it was so much easier to cut and paste from one website to another. The Black Confederate narrative became a way to push the issue of race and slavery aside, uh, to sort of fantasize, if you will, about a time in American history where white and Black people got along peacefully, whether it was during the war. Or during the Jim Crow era, by extension, that the race problems that we currently are experiencing are entirely self-contained. In other words, they don't have a historical root. So you can blame things, affirmative action or other political agenda, if you will, on the racial front. You don't have to worry about addressing the historical roots of racism in America if you believe in the Black Confederate narrative.
5: There will be a smooth transition to a
4: second
3: Trump administration.
4: Right, right. We're, we're ready. Uh, when I heard Pompeo say that the other day, I laughed. And then I thought, did he chuckle when he said that? Right. because <laughs> And didn't. I got a bit worried. Um, the 70% figure about Republicans. I mean, that's another reminder that we live in decidedly different information universes. Um But I've been trying to keep my feet on the ground, not not only by looking back to history and knowing that we've been in massive crises like these before, but that I I really do believe the Trump presidency, with all of its horrors and all of its lying and all of its misadventures with policy, has been essentially a TV show. It is still a TV show. When his press secretary gets up and says what she said, I mean, we can't help laughing at that. On the other hand, the test here is all is going to be if there is a Trump lost cause and there's already one being fashioned in in narrative and in stories and in conspiracy theories and on right wing um, media sources. But if there is to be a Trump lost cause, it it has to be sustained for what it already was, and that is essentially a television show, or maybe it'll be uh, a radio show, or maybe it'll be a theme park, as an article in Politico <laughs> suggested the other day. And that is that is possible. It certainly is possible, but uh, we shall see. Uh, th- Meaning that it needs a vehicle for delivering the idea. He's got to have a medium for 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 this performance. He has he has the audience. The question will be, how does he create a medium in which to keep that audience? Well,
1: so you recently wrote in the New York Review of Books, you said that today's Republican Party is best understood as a modern version of the Confederacy. And you wrote this sentence, you said, quote, they are secessionist without taking the revolutionary step of seceding. So so what do you mean by that?
4: Well, I basically mean that ever since Reaganism, the Republican Party has tried to convince this country to not believe in government that government is essentially a conspiracy against your liberty, and not that which will sustain your liberty, or sustain your life, or your pursuit of happiness. They have, they have rendered as many institutions within the government uh, weak, or as weak as possible. This is, in effect, perhaps you could say from a right-wing point of view, the great triumph of the Trump presidency. It has strangled the Environmental Protection Agency. It has all but destroyed our foreign alliances in the interest of this kind of isolationist vision of the world. Um, They have rendered uh, numerous other institutions uh, moot or weak. And that's what I mean by it, that in effect the Republicans want to own the government that they do not want to actually function for the vast body of the American politic. They want it to function for their own interest. And uh, that, I think, in the, at the end of the day, explains this perverse loyalty of Republicans to Donald Trump, because he did at least help them deliver what they most wanted, which was tax cuts and judges.
1: And how does that sort of that perversity, how does that relate to then the Confederacy and that history? Is that a similar, uh, is that how you understand the Confederacy as well?
4: Well, the leaders of the Old South and then the leaders of the Southern Secession Movement have been arguing for years and years and years that they had to sustain their primary interest, which was a slave society. Make no mistake, that's what they were working to defend. They had to sustain it within this American republic as it was designed and as it was functioning. But the secession movement of 1860 and 61 was essentially their belief that they could no longer live within the structures of the federal government because they had become a minority interest, a decided minority interest. The Republican Party today also is aware that it is risking becoming, if it isn't already, a numerical minority interest in the United States. The more and more it, it identifies as the white people's party, it is becoming a minority mm-hmm. political force. How do you sustain a minority political force in our system? Well, there we have institutions that allow you to do it, like the U.S. Senate and like the Electoral College. And this begins to help explain the vast array of methods of voter suppression that the Republicans have enacted over the past 20 years or so. That analogy to the Confederacy is simply trying to say that we have a political party today. Lindsey Graham, what did he call it? A movement Mm -hmm. that is trying to strangle the function of federal power in their own interest. I don't know that the Republicans will ever try to secede, although there are secessionist efforts and committees and groups all over the country, especially in Texas. There's even one in California for other reasons. But they're not yet secessionists, but they're sort of secessionists from within. They didn't let the impeachment power play out as it was designed. They, they stymied any attempt at further aid to the American people in this pandemic crisis. Uh, Mitch McConnell has sort of locked down the United States Senate, except for the few things that Republicans actually wanted to do. That's a sort of secessionist from within.
0: Now that you're well acquainted with the connection between the Jacobite uprising of Scotland and the lost cause of the Confederacy, I just wanted to make two more connections for you, though there are more than two worth learning. The first may be obvious, but I just want to confirm that, yes, the Ku Klux Klan is explicitly taking inspiration from the traditional Highland clans of Scotland. That is not a coincidence. The second is less obvious, so you can really impress during your next conversation about random trivia. In old Scotland, when the clan leaders wished to call upon their neighboring clans to come together to fight a common enemy, the traditional symbol was to carry a burning cross. As Wikipedia puts it, in Scotland, the Fiery Cross, known as the Cran Terra, was used as a declaration of war. The sight of it commanded all clan members to rally to the defense of the area. On other occasions, a small burning cross would be carried from town to town. And now just one last connection for you between the old world and the new, though this one has no meaning beyond pure coincidence, but I think it's fun. Trump, as we know, is the 45th president of the United States, and so the number 45 is a prominent part of his marketing material right alongside MAGA. Many liberals also uh, despise Trump so thoroughly and don't want to give his name brand any more promotion than necessary uh, that they actually will only refer to him by his number as 45. So if Trump is ousted from office and Joe Biden is sworn in as our 46th president, we should fully expect for Trump's lost cause to seize on this as a sort of shorthand for referring to their cause. The idea, this this lost cause, the the noble battle for the rightful president who was wrongly and deviously pushed from power by fraud and the deep state, all while discrediting Joe Biden's place in the Hall of Presidents as as the 46th president. All of this can be summed up with a simple 45. Well, in the years following the Jacobite uprising, which was, of course, fighting for the rightful place of a leader to lead the nations of England and Scotland, supporters of that lost cause took to referring to that failed campaign by the year it began— 1745, sometimes calling it the 45 Rebellion or simply the 45. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Dan, and Ken, for their volunteer work helping to put our transcripts together. They're going to have their hands full with the automatic transcriptions of the Scottish accents they're going to have to deal with. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments, plus, frankly, a whole bunch of other stuff. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voiced mails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202 999 3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. Today's episode has worn me out completely. From for what I hope are obvious reasons. So we're going to be getting back to listener messages in coming episodes. In case you missed the urgent announcement episode from just a day ago, you you can find it in your feed. I'll mention you should obviously go back and check it out because it explains that uh, the show is going through some major financial hardship right now. And I explain in detail how you can help, including one option that costs you no money, which is amazing. Obviously, if you can become a paying member or increase the size of your recurring contribution, that is the most direct way you can help, and we absolutely appreciate anyone who's willing to do that. We also offer gift memberships now if you want to give out memberships to the show to friends and family. Speaking of gifts, we also have a new merch store, which is set up in a really interesting way because besides our own store with our stuff in it, the site has thousands and thousands of other designs available. And if you check out our store first, and then end up buying anything from anywhere on the site, we will get some referral credit for that. So if you're looking for t-shirts or stickers or coffee mugs or a tote bag or any other kind of merchandise type stuff like that, with just about any design you can imagine, check out our merch store and then explore to your heart's content. But the most exciting new feature we have is our referral program, the refer Because the thing about... The kind of financial troubles we're having right now, and, and for a show like ours in general, is that if we just had a bigger audience, then the money would just start to take care of itself. We wouldn't have to worry about it so much. So our referral program, lovingly dubbed the referromatic, is the fun and exciting way for you to get rewarded for helping to share the show. And we're already off to a good start. We've got about 20 signups in the first day or so. And I'm not saying it's a competition, but I do already have some people to thank for succeeding in making their first referrals. Jeff D., David F., and Shane K. have all made referrals within mere hours of signing up and are on their way to fabulous prizes and acclaim. So huge thanks to the three of them. But finally, here's what I want to emphasize about the referral program. Yes, most of the prizes are free merch. And yes, you could just go and pay cold, hard cash and get the items you want. But the reward for referring just five new listeners is something that you can't get anywhere else for any price. Custom artwork designed by collaboration between myself and Amanda for your phone or tablet, and and listen, I usually do not like to hype things up. I hate for people to be disappointed. I like to downplay stuff, if anything, but I'm making an exception in this case because these images are so badass that every time you look at your device, you're going to do a fist pump and say like, yeah, come on, let's do this before checking your email or, or text message or whatever. Now, I can't tell you any more about them because finding out is part of the reward. So sign up now at bestofleft.com slash refer. And of course, all the links to membership, merch, and the referromatic are all in the show notes. But seriously you're you're not gonna want to miss out on that. That is gonna be it for today. So as always, keep the comments coming in at 202 or by emailing me to J at Bestofleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com slash support. That is absolutely how the program survives now more than ever.